The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Erica Geis. She is an award-winning journalist and National Geographic explorer who writes extensively about water, climate change, and biology. Her work has been published in The Scientific American, The New York Times, Washington Post, Nature, The Atlantic, The Economist, Wired, and more. She is also the author of a brand new book. It's titled Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. And that will largely be the focus of our conversation today. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. So I want to dive into your thought-provoking book. But first, I want to ask a little bit about your history. You have been investigating and writing about water for more than two decades. What draws you to this subject? Well, I grew up in California, where water is kind of an obsession of everyone, because we have historically had periods of drought, followed by periods of big storms. And of course, that's getting more intense with climate change. And also because agriculture has been such a big part of the state's growth. And there has been a documented period of repeatedly expanding agriculture beyond what the natural water can really supply, which has gotten us to the state where the whole endeavor is a little bit precarious. I was curious about how agriculture might play into your book. And you make it clear in your introduction that You don't spend a lot of time on agriculture, but I'm glad you brought that up. I want to ask you something else about your book. It's described as quietly radical. How so? Well, really, I'm calling for people to change the culture of how we relate to water. So it is a very radical shift in what we've been doing. And I think there's mounting evidence that what we've been doing is no longer working. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of that is population growth. We have more than double the number of people on earth than when I was born. And during that time, we've seen a subsequent marked decline in the lives of other creatures and plants that we share this earth with. And those have very negative consequences for us as well, because The natural systems support so much of what we do to make life habitable here on Earth. And humans have actually altered 75% of the land area. So there's just increasingly less and less space for water and animals and other systems to do the things that they do that help us to survive. I'm so glad you brought up this idea of this need to rethink We're not so good at that, and I'm not sure why, except that I reflect on the Western culture's dominant narratives, that we are taught from a very young age that we can control nature. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, I go into this in the book. You know, it really gets down to Judeo-Christian thought, which is at the heart of European and American culture. And the reason that that's important is because that has been exported around the world via 
colonialism and capitalism. And so the way we, I have that in quotes, but I include myself in that, in the dominant culture, think about things is very, very much dominates what happens in the world today. And so there was this kind of historic separation of humans from nature that goes back to the Greek period, but really came to a sort of a new flowering during the industrial revolution. And as I see it, it really became an excuse to exploit nature for our own profits. Whereas older cultures, including indigenous cultures today, and including Europeans before <laughs> this period, when people live closer to the land, there was much more of an understanding that we are reliant upon it and its systems. And so there was much more of a caretaking aspect. There was an understanding that if you didn't take care of the resource, it wouldn't be there for you. Whereas now we can go to another country to exploit their resources when we run out of our resources. There's a distance there where we don't really understand or see what we're doing. And when I say we, I mean the general public. Obviously, there are people who are making this happen and profiting in excess from it who do have some sense but don't care because the incentives are misaligned in our economic system, which is also predicated on some really false ideas like that the economy can grow forever. The economy is reliant upon natural resources and we live on a finite planet. So it's just common sense that that's not true. And it's been propped up by this period of colonization where you go to another place and where you exploit their resources. And that still happens today, although in different ways where maybe a corporation is paying off the elites in a country who are then taking land away from traditional land managers, et cetera. Anyway, it, it's complex, but basically in the book, I'm calling for a change in the dominant way that we relate to water. When we put humans first, when it's all about what can nature do for us, we think of water as either a commodity or a threat. A commodity if it's scarce, a threat if it's flooding and we have too much. And so that tends to lead to these single focus solutions. So if we need water, you know, what do we do? We build a dam, we bring it from somewhere else. If we're worried about flooding, we build a wall, we build a levee. And these impacts, they cause a lot of unintended negative consequences because they are interfering with the natural systems that support us. And just a few statistics about the extent to which humans have interfered with the water cycle. We've actually drained or filled 87% of the world's wetlands, dammed and diverted two thirds of the world's large rivers, and the land area covered by pavement in our cities that prevents rain from soaking into the land where it falls has doubled just since 1992. Other cultures, including many indigenous cultures, instead think of water as a friend or a relative, which I think can sound a little woo-woo to some ears, but what it encourages is that systems thinking about water's relationship with the soil and rocks and microbes and beavers and people. And when you're thinking in those systems, you're better able to anticipate how you might harm them if you pursue that single focus solution. Exactly. How would we know how much the landscape has changed historically with regard to water, if not for having that kind of education in the classroom early on? 
how would I have known that we've filled or drained 87% of the world's wetlands? And why would I, or how would I know that that's even important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, we really take water for granted in the dominant culture. And that's why we're causing so much damage to these systems. It's not really taught. And when we look around our communities today, the water is so altered that we have no idea what it looked like historically. And that's called shifting baselines syndrome. So it's like what the landscape looked like when I was a child, like that's my point of reference of what's quote unquote normal. So the way that people are trying to address this is doing something called historical ecology. And so the idea is that you do research into where the rivers and creeks were in your city. And today, many of them are buried, either filled with dirt and paved over or put in pipes and paved over. The ones that do remain on the surface tend to be really altered. They're straightened. They're anchored with concrete or sandbags. That causes something I call fast water, which erodes down into the land. So it's significantly lower than the surrounding land. By doing historical ecology, you understand where water wants to go based on where it went historically. And in that way, you can understand, oh, hey, this neighborhood keeps flooding because we built it on on wetlands. <laughs> you know, the water keeps wanting to go back there. So maybe if there's a call to take down this building instead of authorizing another building, maybe we'll turn that back into a wetland so that can help prevent flooding for other people in the community. So that's the kind of thinking to do about it. And, you know, I wrote this book because I felt like this was such an important part of our necessary education about the land around us. And I truly believe that people have an innate love for water. You know, if you ask people, what is your favorite body of water? Everybody has a favorite creek or river or lake or ocean. And the human body is 70% water. So I think we have an innate interest in water and helping to cultivate people's curiosity about what water is doing in your local landscape, how it's been subverted, how we can help to free it to make ourselves safer and healthier is really important. And these slow water projects that people are doing in their communities to make space again for the wetlands, floodplains, mountain meadows, and forests that we've disrupted have so many co-benefits. They can both prevent flooding and drought. They can store carbon dioxide, so they actually help to decrease climate change. They are homes to all kinds of plants and critters, some of whom are in trouble. And these healthy animals and plants also help to regulate these systems. And they're really important for our own physical and mental health because humans are biophiliacs, as E.O. Wilson said. We love life. And so we're happier when we're in nature. And there are actual compounds that are put out by plants that help us be physically more healthy as well. So there are many, many layers to the benefits of making space for water and its systems. There's one page that I highlighted because I thought it was so important. It has to do with those ecosystem services, as you've just described. And I would hope that individuals would have a chance to read this book in schools before they graduate, because many times people graduate from high school and maybe that's the extent of their education. And maybe they get into positions where they're asked to adopt a practice 
that doesn't fit with what's right for water and nature and ultimately us. So I think that this book is really important in helping us develop more of a reverence for water. And I always say this during the program, anytime I talk about water, but water is our most important nutrient. And so my perspective is anything that we do that would harm the quality or safety of our water is against our best interests. But as you say, development is a huge draw. In fact, even local governments are quick to say, well, you know, if we're not growing, we're dying. We've got to embrace development because it's good for the tax base. But at what cost, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually, it's such a short-sighted view because when you fill in a wetland, for example, to develop on top of it, you know, you say we need housing and there's some, well, it's not exactly land, but we can make it land and we'll build something on top of it. You're reducing space for water. And in doing that, you're actually increasing flood risk for people nearby. So there was a really interesting study in an economic journal that looked at a particular wetland, actually not far from you in Missouri. And if somebody was going to develop it, like it's their property, it's their right to develop it. It actually takes away from the property value of people up to 40 miles away because you are reducing space for water and therefore increasing flood risk for everyone else. That's one way in which you're harming other people and then the local government may be on the hook for disaster recovery, but also things like just providing access, the things that a city is expected to provide, roads, electricity, water, all of those systems can be easily impacted by flooding and drought, and the city is going to have to pay for that. So maybe they're increasing their tax base in the very short term, but in the not too distant future, their expenses are going to be that much higher. And that's something that I really wish people understood when they're thinking about land use planning in their area. But the slow water projects can be really empowering for people because they are something that people can do locally and they are scalable. And I'll just say like they're distributed. So right now our water management is centralized and handled by experts, but slow water projects are distributed throughout the watershed across the landscape, which makes sense if you think of that 87% of the wetlands that have been disrupted. And I think that gives so much opportunity. Like if you have this small little space here, you can help that become a place for slow water. And then if your neighbor does that, that further decreases the flood risk. And I'll just add that the centralized water management systems are environmental justice issues. So I think people are pretty familiar with the idea that if you build a levee to protect a community from flooding, that raises the water level in the river because the river no longer has that floodplain to slow and dissipate. And so if there's a nearby community who can't afford a levee, you're going to increase the flood risk for them and increase the flood damages. But dams and reservoirs are also environmental justice issues. There was a 40-year study that found that dams brought water to 20% of the world's population, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's population. So these slow water projects are really about making the most of the water that comes to you locally and working within your own area's natural hydrology, geology, ecology, and culture to find a solution that works for the community. Right. 
Let me take a break, Erica, and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Erica Guys. She is a journalist and National Geographic explorer who writes extensively about water, climate change, and biology. We are discussing her new book. It's titled Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. I want to talk about slow water because I want to make sure people understand what we're talking about when we use that terminology. If you were to describe slow water in a nutshell, what would it be? It's really about making space for water's natural slow phases. So these are wetlands, floodplains, mountain meadows, and forests, all of the places where water once slowed on the land. And that's so important because water and underground water have a very important dynamic relationship that helps to absorb floods, that helps to supply water through streams throughout the dry season, and also creates a whole bunch of important biological and nutrient cycling processes. So it's sort of like the stream's gut microbiome, and if it's not healthy, the water can't be healthy. So it's about conserving those ecosystems that remain, and it's about restoring and making space for them wherever possible. And if you're in a city where it's all very built up, or if you're in an industrial agricultural area, you know you might think, oh, there's no space for slow water here. This is where we're doing intensive human things. But there are many things that can be done within those systems as well. So in cities, you might put in bioswales. Bioswales are vegetated ditches with native plants that can absorb water and help it move underground rather than running off into the sewer. You can have green roofs. You can have permeable pavement. You can give incentives to landowners to have more of their yard be permeable rather than paved. In agriculture, there are lots of ways in which you can create spaces for slow water around the borders of your crops or even work it directly into the landscape. There are many traditional ways of agriculture across the world in parts of India and Africa, for example, where they have seasonal rain and they create little ditches on the landscape that help the water to slow and move underground. And that raises the water table and keeps that water available throughout the year. And healthy soil is really, really important too. Soil that retains a lot of its organic matter as opposed to just the mineral water can hold orders of magnitude more water. So agricultural practices are a fantastic way to ensure that you are helping soil get healthier rather than degrading it and making it sicker. Because if you have healthy soil, it can just absorb so much water. And that also means that you have to irrigate a lot less. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was thinking that we have these opportunities every five years to look at the farm bill, which is this huge document. But if there are sections of that bill that could really benefit water as well as soil, as well as human health and environmental health, but to incentivize the kinds of land and water management that might not equate to more volumes of grain, for example, but a healthier ecosystem. So we have to shift our thinking too about what do we expect from agriculture? Is it bushels of corn and soy? Is that going to be our measure of success? The more you can produce or is it 
also looking at the impacts, looking at that short-term gain versus long-term loss or benefit. Right. And there's something too that's so extractive about industrial agriculture, right? It's about maximizing the harvest of a particular commodity rather than stewarding the health of the land. And I, I know a lot of farmers, even industrial farmers, do feel a lot of emotional commitment to their land and do want to manage it and steward it and care for it and pass it down to the next generation. But unfortunately, a lot of them are locked into, well, this is how my grandfather did it and this is the way it's done. Not all of them, certainly a lot of them also are open to creative new ways of doing things and experimenting. And I think that can be so powerful because that is the best way to get wider spread change is when someone in someone's own community does something different and it succeeds. And then the neighboring farmer sees the benefits that are happening. I've seen some examples of that in the West with beavers. For a long time, it was thought, oh, you know, beavers flood land and therefore we should kill them. But as the West has gotten drier and drier for various reasons, including killing all the beavers, which happened prior to settlement, as beavers come back, farmers and ranchers are realizing, oh, hey, this creates a fire break. This creates a higher water table. So I don't have to water my plants as often. And the fields that are near the beaver ponds are actually much healthier and much more productive. And so you have examples of ranchers who are maybe very conservative and you would think wouldn't be open to such a thing. And then they see the benefit of the beavers and then their neighbors want to get beavers onto their land. And so that kind of sharing of experience and practice among neighbors can be really powerful. Absolutely. For many years, I served on the Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Service Board. And I will never forget a farmer who received the Farmer of the Year Award. And it was right after there was a large amount of rainfall. And this particular farmer had such healthy soil, so much organic matter, that he did not have the kind of devastation from water runoff on his land compared to his neighbor who was not farming using organic methods. So to your point about the importance of soil in protecting water quality and land preservation, there's just another example. Yeah. I want to bring up something else that you mentioned. You report that lawns are the biggest water villain, that they are the largest irrigated crop in our country. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's amazing. And, you know, lawns are also a huge source of water pollution because so many pesticides and fertilizers are applied to them and those run off into our rivers. So yeah, lawns are kind of like green pavement. Very little biodiversity can live in them. And we also tend to mow them really frequently. And so they don't produce their seeds. They don't provide any kind of longer habitat for even insects. So it's really kind of green desert. And it's also meant to evoke the lawns of the estates of the English aristocracy. And so you do kind of think like, why are we doing this everywhere around the world? I mean, I think that there's a place for lawns. They're great if you want to play soccer. They're great for kids to run around in. But actually, there have been a lot of studies that show that 
kids learn a lot more when they're in a natural environment because it's something called the loose parts theory of play. When there are so many different variables, they have to really use their imaginations to figure out what they're going to make of that environment and how they're going to interact with it. And when they play with other kids in that environment, then they have to negotiate how they're going to do that. So there's like a lot of social skill building stuff. Anyway, that's a little bit of an aside, but I will say that I have converted my yard to native plants because there are so many fewer native plants in all of our areas as we've exported lawns and other typically European ornamentals all over. And that means that there's a lot less space for the native plants and animals that live in that area as well. And the beautiful thing about native plants, I'm from California, where we have these regular several year droughts, native plants evolved for that. So if you have native plants in your yard, you don't need to water them. They get by on the rain that comes. And that was my primary motivation in converting my yard to native plants. And then I started to learn more about all of the other benefits. And this is a growing movement. California just recently proposed banning all non-useful lands and cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas have done that as well, Los Angeles. So I think we're going to see this as an increasing movement. And there's a lot that can be said for embracing your place for what it offers. Like Phoenix, for example, people move there because they love the desert. So why are they going to cut down their saguaro cactuses and plant a lawn. It just doesn't make sense. And increasingly, you're seeing a movement toward people really embracing their pride of place with the plants and animals that are local to that place. One more thought on this, which is, you know, I went to China where they have something called the sponge cities movement, which is trying to make the cities more permeable to reduce the urban flooding and to make sure they have water in the dry season. And one of the primary proponents of this is a landscape architect named Yu Kongjiang. And he talks about something called big feet aesthetics. So in China, many years ago, there was a fashion of binding the feet of aristocratic women. And they would have these tiny, tiny little feet. And really, they could barely walk. So they couldn't work. But it was a symbol of their wealth because they were too rich to work. And so that's why these small feet were considered to be beautiful. And so what he says is a lot of our landscapes are like that with lawns and ornamental plants. Like they look pretty, but they don't serve any function. And he's saying now we need to embrace big feet aesthetics. We need landscapes that can absorb rain and prevent flooding, that can supply water to our rivers through the dry season so that we have enough we need landscapes that are going to be able to grow the food that we want, even within cities in some cases that are going to be able to provide recreation and green space for our mental and physical health. I think about that a lot when it comes to lawns, like what are lawns doing for us? There are a few places where we might want lawns to run around on, but many, many of the places where we have lawns, we could have more functional, interesting plants. That's a wonderful note to end on. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. 
But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Erica Guise. She is a journalist and National Geographic explorer. She writes extensively about water, climate change, and biology. And her latest book is Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. And I will provide a link, Erica, to your website where people can learn more. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. If people want to learn more, they can go to slowwater.world. It was really an honor to talk with you. Mm-hmm.